Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with Paul Attaway, author of Blood in the Low Country, a thriller in which the idyllic life of one man is forever changed after a shocking and brutal murder. Monty Atkins has a wonderful life with his beautiful wife, successful business, and the southern tranquility of living in 1970s Charleston, South Carolina. With shocking betrayals, murder, bigotry, and a conspiracy of lives, Monty races to save everything that is important to him. Jeff Andrews, author of The Freedom Star and The Gandy Dancer, had this to say about the book. Paul Attaway's riveting debut novel introduces readers to the genteel South of the mid-20th century and then rips off that facade to reveal a treacherous underbelly of greed, deceit, violence, and bigotry. Uh, Attaway's gripping tale unfolds through richly drawn characters that will engage readers and keep them enthralled through one suspenseful chapter after another. This is a story that will stay with you long after you close the final page. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlotteraspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was a, it was a interesting read, fast read, and you know when I saw that, I'm, I'm not even sure where I saw this, and when I reached out to you, I saw you being promoted somewhere, and I saw that uh, another former lawyer, you know, had, right. had written a compelling book set in the region. I said, I got to contact this guy. So. <laughs> What, what gives here? First of all, let's start with the region. Uh, you set this in uh, the low country, uh, South Carolina. Tell us about your connection to South Carolina and why you wanted to set this novel in the Charleston area. 
Well, um, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, originally. So growing up, we did some vacationing in Hilton Head and and uh, Sea Island. But I've lived uh, my most of my adult life in Phoenix, Arizona with my wife, and we raised three kids. Um, they all developed a love for the South, coming back to visit my family. And our middle child, our daughter, Sarah, she attended the College of Charleston. So we, you know, visiting her, we just fell in love with the city. And our youngest went off to college in 2013. So we became empty nesters and we looked at each other and we said, we both, we both of what we wanted to do. And that was to spend more time in Charleston. So we, we bought a small place here in 2014 and we began to visit uh, back and forth between Phoenix and Charleston. And uh, we made it our permanent residence uh, last December. We moved, mm-hmm. uh, we sold our house in Phoenix and now we live here. And so all that back and forth between uh, Phoenix and Charleston, your mind is starting to work here. What what was it about Charleston that made you think, I need to set a, a bloody novel in the city? <laughs> well, uh, it, it was basically, it's sort of, um, uh, I got the idea in my head that I could write a book. And with my wife's prompting and encouragement, um, uh, I set out to do it. And at the time I was, when I decided to try to write a book, um, I was between consulting projects. I had just finished one, and I was reluctant, really, to jump back into another one. And we were here. And so I was reading books about how to write books and reading blogs about how to write books. And a lot of it, you know, a lot of really good advice, a lot of advice that wasn't that good, but more good than bad. But a recurring piece of advice was write what you know. Um, and also put fences around your story. Don't Don't go... Don't don't travel the globe. Don't don't try to you know cover too much time. So I thought about those things. I understood. Well, I knew what it was like to grow up in the South. I knew what it was like to vacation in the Low Country. You know what it meant to go to church on a Sunday, uh, go to the club brunch afterwards. I had those experiences, and then quite simply, uh, we just love Charleston as as just about anybody who's spent any time here. You can't walk away. And conclude anything other than that is a unique city. And so the uniqueness of the city allows you to really write about it as if it's a character itself and a story. Um, And so those were a few decisions I made. Set it in the South. Set it in Charleston. You'll write about a few things that I know. That's kind of how it got started. Yeah, that's great. It is a wonderful area for – you know, to visit, uh, to, 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 to engage in all kinds of activities, including sightseeing that you got the water down there and it's, and it's great for stories. And a lot of stories have been told set in that, uh, area. Um, but I'm just thinking, uh, you know, Paul, and, and I have had my own personal experience with going from doing something else to being a author, but, uh, every story is different. Uh, what went your, through your head, uh, and tell us a little bit about the difference in, your life before writing fiction and how that uh, is sort of juxtaposed against your life writing fiction. <laughs> well, I, um, you know, uh, to try to capsulize it as quickly as I can, you know, I was a lawyer for a whopping two years. Um, <laughs> I was in law school for three, practiced law for two. So I don't think the economics worked out there, but I learned a lot. I learned how to think like a lawyer. Um, and uh, that benefited me throughout my life. But then past that, I was in the the small business world. And I started several different small businesses, you know, sold them, started another one. And frankly, that's, it's a, it's an exhausting process. It's all consuming. Um, we'd become empty nesters. My wife was like, 
you know, let's let, let's enjoy some time. You know, let's have more than a one week vacation, things like that. So I, um, you know, I, I say I went to the dark side. I became a consultant, um, which I'm pretty sure is Latin for "Can you raise me money?" <laughs> and so I did that for a few years. And I joke now, I don't think I probably wasn't very good at it because I just had no passion for it really. Um, and so I, I, I just basically said I, I was too young to retire. I, I couldn't go you know, play golf or go fishing every day. I, I needed a creative outlet. And, you know, I was, I, I'd read a book and I would say to my wife, wow, what a great book. Or I might read a book and go, well, it wasn't so good. I, I, I could do that. And I think my wife got sick and tired of hearing that. And so she finally <laughs> just said, well, you, 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 know, you either need to do this or just move on. So yeah, I, just, I write, go, just, right. just write, write the damn book. Right? Write the damn book and, and, and get out of here. Go find an office. So that was kind of, it. It was more like I was between consulting gigs and I wasn't all that excited about finding the next one. And I said, um, okay, I'm going to write a book. And the, the, the crazy thing is, is in my, in my business life, I knew how to do what I had to do. Um, whether it was research competition, research the markets, understand raising debt, raising equity. I knew the steps. It wasn't a guarantee that I'd be a success, but I knew how to do it. And I could look at my day and go, okay, that's a 15-minute task. That's I need two hours to shut the door for that. That's a 10-minute phone call. I could just sort of I could lay out my day and pretty much know where I was going to be by five o'clock. Um, so then I come to the process of writing a book. So I did what I did. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll read a book or two on how to write a book. I'll read a few blogs on how to write a book. And I, I had about three, you know, uh, you know, these things, legal pads, you know, full of notes and ideas. And so we're here in Charleston and I have my backpack with my laptop in it. And I walk up the street to this beautiful old library and I sit down and I literally looking at the blank sheet and I go, what the hell am I doing? And I, I had no idea how to do it. I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to start. Yeah, um, it, it sounds like it, a t yeah. typical law, typical lawyer businessman. Well, I know I'm, I've got the formula. I'm just going to go right. take this formula and I'm going to use it. But one of the things you said, I think, described, um, I mean, it's not like you escaped from, from these two uh, uh, adjectives you used. You talked about an exhausting process and an all-consuming process, which could just as easily be assigned to writing a novel. You're absolutely right. Um, I was recently uh, on a little weekend getaway with seven other guys. We we drove down to a place uh, and played golf for a couple of days. And we're sitting around uh, having dinner that night and and, um, and, and, and talking about this and that. And, you know, I said something and one of the guy goes, oh, Attaway, you don't work. <laughs> and I go, the hell I do. I, I'm not sure there's a time when I'm not working. Um, granted, it, it, it may not look like it, but you're, you're always trying to think of the next character or where the story is supposed to go. And, and you know, I come to the desk every day. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all consuming. I, I know people ask me, you know, how retirement's going. I say, well, let's see, the podcast, I'm putting out two episodes a week. Uh, I'm writing a novel. I'm writing some other things. Oh, and I'm teaching a couple. Oh, yeah, and I'm doing – yeah, so it's not like – I think no. I'm actually – I could probably bill more hours now than I could my last year as a lawyer, as a lawyer. Keep, keeping my time. But all right, look, we can't talk. We're, uh, listeners, we are going to jump over to Patreon before this is over. And we're going to do a little uh, deeper dive with Paul about uh, how to shift from one career 
to a writing career as part of our Patreon channel. You can check us out there at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Rivers Podcast. But we're not going to hold you in suspense any longer about blood in the low country. This is a, it's a, it's a fun book. I enjoyed it. Um, I want to start with the cover, uh, Paul, because it drew me in. Um, I'm, I'm thinking we got a little sandy dune here uh, holding back the ocean. Um, you got the high seagrasses that are there. Talk about the cover and talk about the title for this book. Um, it, it is fascinating. Uh, I wrote the book and I thought I was done. And um, then I set about to get published. And long story short, I end up was connected to a woman who had 30 plus years experience in the industry and she was invaluable. And I had a working title for the book. And um, I had started out with a company that I'm sure has done excellent work for others. It didn't work for me. And they gave me a cover. And I, 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 um, I had no idea what the book was about. In fact, I thought they had emailed me the wrong file. It looked <laughs> nothing like the book. And so I found this new consultant, and she introduced me to another book cover designer. And we did a deep dive into what's the genre? Who's your audience? Um, these are all questions that professional writers ask before they sit down to write a book. Never even occurred to me. I just wrote a book. So um, low country, we live in the low country. That's what this part of the uh, world is referred to as. There is a there is a debate as to whether or not it's one word or two words. Um, <laughs> um, I went with two words. But um, uh, as you know, you can't copyright the name of a book, but you right. certainly want to avoid confusion. So blood refers to two things. Blood, there is a murder. Okay. Now it's not glamorized. It's not glorified. It happens off scene, but there is a murder. But blood also refers to family. And so this is a family drama and some backstories to one or two characters. One in particular will set the stage for a betrayal um, and things that happen to this family in response to a murder. So blood in the low country is supposed to indicate sort of a double meaning family and murder. Low country is the region. Now the cover, it was designed to be, to, to, to it, it is a tranquil setting. This is a beautiful area. The Mont, Monty Atkins and his wife Rose, uh, by all appearances on the surface, everything looks wonderful. And then you, you look at the cover and on the surface, everything looks wonderful. But beneath that, um, Things aren't as they seem. Yeah. So now then from a purely business perspective, um, over 75% of all books are purchased by women. Uh, you have to have a, a cover. It can't be too shocking. It can't, it can't, it can't scream violence necessarily uh, because I could turn off somebody and you've got like a millisecond when someone looks at the cover of your book. If you're a debut author, they don't associate with you. They have to look at the book pick it up, read the description and go, okay, I want to read this. That's a lot to cover. I mean, that's a lot to accomplish with a cover. I know. And it's particularly difficult. I think as an author, if you're writing and your, your brain is in words to suddenly become a graphic artist, which you're yeah. not right. <laughs> try to try to pick it. Sometimes it's, you don't know what it should look like. You only know it's right when you see it. And when you, when you pick up this cover here, I, the, the things I like about it is it, it's a very, it, like you said, it's a tranquil setting here with the ocean in the background. It looks like there's some sea breeze going on. But then the title, you actually work in the blood aspect of it in the word blood by putting some red 
in those letters B L O O D. Correct. Uh, as if it's dripping. I just thought it was a, a, right. it's a cl- clever way to bring that in and say, okay, there's something else going on in this nice setting other than what meets the eye. Yeah. 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 Our, our designer was uh, is very good at what he does. Um, and um, so, yes, you're right. A lot is accomplished with a seemingly few um, images or symbols, mm, but he, yeah. a lot is a lot is uh, conveyed. And you you were right on when you say you know the the hardest thing is that little synopsis that goes on the back of the book. Hell, you write about eighty ninety thousand words, and now you got to bullet it down into a paragraph, right? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's uh it's like that presentation. Just tell me tell me what you know what's what's going on here in the first half of the first page. Um, all right, look, let's talk about the story here for a minute. We got uh, an inciting incident uh, in the story is that uh, Kimberly, Monty's adopted son's girlfriend, is found murdered. Um, Eli is uh, a child from wife Rose's previous marriage, uh, and he's blamed for this murder. Um, and he's this prime suspect in the murder. Um and you got Monty Atkins. He's a career lawyer with a successful firm in Charleston. He's married, uh, you know, to to, to Rose. Um, but, you know, you've got this uh, Charleston setting. Um, I was curious about that a little bit. Before we do our opening read here to introduce us to Rose, the, the mother, <laughs> I think I wrote the word stuffy or uh, old, uh, you know, paternalistic or whatever it might be. But on about page 72 – you talk about how hard it is to get into Charleston society, you know, and what it means to have the right name to live in Charleston. Talk a little bit about that as it comes to to Charleston, because there was a particular school that uh, only you could only get in if you were related to related to related to. <laughs> well, you know, it's um, one of the other um, things I picked up reading uh, reading books and blogs about how to write a book is you know we have to fictionalize things our our lives by and large if we simply wrote about our own personal lives they're pretty boring so we have to we have to fictionalize and so I took a few liberties with some stereotypes and uh, there is a street in town called Broad Street and if you live south of Broad that's where a lot of the beautiful old homes are that were built 100 years or more ago and and they're on the pricey side. So if you live up south of Broad, you're an SOB. Now, <laughs> if you live slightly north of Broad, you're a snob, but you desire to be an SOB. So I, I took a little liberties with the stereotypical social climber um, image that uh, would apply to people uh, who, would, who might have been born south of Broad some time ago. Um, the city has, you know, I live here now, it's 2021. Um, the people that were born and raised here would like to see the drawbridges raised and no more people would come in because, you know, the, I, I joke when I was first here, I was sitting in a diner having breakfast and I got to talking to a few gentlemen next to me and came out that I had just moved here and they go, okay, so what part of Ohio are you from? <laughs> and cause so everyone's moving here. So this this the image of the old stuffy uh you have to be a fourth generation charlestonian to rise up in society 
I'm sure that was true in some circles some time ago. Um, it's not; it's no longer the case today. But mm-hmm. it does allow us to sort of, you know, you, you you don't have to write quite so much about a character when you can attach that stereotype, and then we all have this image of the social climber. And mm-hmm. so I, I I use that a little bit to fill out a character or two. Yeah, I thought that was funny. The the snobs are slightly north abroad, and right, the SOBs right. are, are, are south abroad. Right. Uh, uh, well, let's do this because uh, the book does not open with the murder. I mentioned those inciting incident, but it came, you know, a few chapters in because you started out uh, telling us a little bit about Rose and her background. She's the mother of Eli, who's accused of this murder. And I thought it was interesting you did that because it came in handy later on when I was trying to understand, you know, why Rose is the kind of person that she was. Uh, before you introduce uh, us with this reading, tell us about Rose and what's about to happen in this little two to three minute reading you're going to do. Okay. So, well, the book opens with her son, her second son, Walker, and then it jumps quickly to a family setting of, of Rose, her husband, Monty, and Walker. And then we go back like 30 years to, to find out more about this Rose character. So, um, you know, um, there are there are evil people in books. There are anti-heroes in books. They have bad characteristics. And then there are complex people. And the book does have a truly evil person. And there's no excusing this person's behavior. There is behavior on Rose's side that made a lot of my readers very angry. But I felt that the backstory created an opportunity for empathy and redemption for her. And so that's why I went to such great lengths because, again, you've got pure evil. We don't need to explain it. It's there. It's like a shark. It hums along. And then you've got complicated people with backstories that have an opportunity to evolve. And Mm -hmm. so understanding Rose was critical. In, In order to really understand her actions in the book, it was critical to know her backstory. And that's why I spent so much time on it. All right, so we're going to start with Chapter 6. It's the University of Alabama, August of 1953. Whenever you're ready, take it away. All right, let me put my eyeballs in. Okay. It was a bright, clear day, a day full of promise, just five months after Rose had won the Miss Junior Alabama pageant. Despite the heat and the season, a slight breeze kept the weight of the humidity at bay. Rose, standing at the bottom of the stairs leading up to the women's dormitory, imagined all that awaited her. Rose had received mail earlier that summer from the university describing freshman orientation, and she had counted the days until it was time to leave home. At the breakfast table earlier that day, she wept along with her mother. Her father, to the surprise of neither, left before sunup. Her older brother, Hank, to her great relief, had not been around for some time. So Beulah and Rose sat across from each other at the kitchen table and laughed and cried. Beulah was a strong woman of above-average height. She had long brown hair that she kept in a bun, but this morning it was still hanging down past her shoulders. Her soft smile emanated more from the crinkle in her eyes and the tilt of her head than from the upturned corners of her mouth. It was easy to see that as a younger woman, she had been quite beautiful. The many hours outdoors, stooped low and tilling the soil, however, had aged her. She did not complain, though. She enjoyed the work and felt most alive in her garden. 
Beulah was the daughter of a circuit pastor who preached at several Methodist churches in Colbert County along the Tennessee River. Her father was a humble man who preached the gospel, but a gospel filled with a healthy dose of fire and brimstone. She was taught to read sheet music and play the piano by her mother, who traveled with her father, providing the music for church services and tent revivals. Beulah was a faithful member of the First Baptist Church down the road and had taught Sunday school to most of the children in the area for as long as anyone could remember. Though times were hard, she provided a few creature comforts for herself and her daughter. Nevertheless, she knew there were only two things in this world she could give her children. She could bring them into the world and she could tell them about Jesus. Beyond that, she relied upon prayer and the Lord's good graces. That morning, she had given her daughter a Bible and a purse filled with cosmetics and some hard-earned money. Mother, I couldn't. Where did you get it? asked Rose. Mama, if you took that from Daddy's desk, you know he'll miss it. Don't you worry about that. I know where he keeps a stash of money. By the time he misses it, you'll be long gone. He won't be able to put two and two together, and he'll likely think one of the help stole from him. Rose and her mother sat together that morning until it was time for her to leave for the bus. Beulah cried tears of joy as her only daughter walked out of the house, carrying both of their hopes and dreams with her. Ma'am, may I help you with your bag? In front of Rose stood a young man with his hands in his back pockets and his right foot resting on the first step of the dormitory entrance. The sun was at his back, and with the bag in each hand, Rose couldn't guard her eyes, but instead just squinted. Excuse me? Your bags, ma'am. We're here to help with orientation. It's the only day men are allowed in the women's dorm to help with move-in. Or at least that's what they'll tell you tonight when you meet your RA, he said with a roguish smile. RA? Your resident advisor. Don't worry. It seems a bit overwhelming at first, but you'll do fine. Rose stared at the man, seeing in him something dark, but strangely familiar. Breaking the silence, he announced, My name is Wrath. Wrath? That's a peculiar name. I don't think I've ever heard it before. It's short for Wrathbone, my granddaddy's name, but everybody just calls me Wrath. Then Wrath slid closer and took the bags from her hands. And what should I call you? He was standing close, too close, and she smelled alcohol in his breath. Yet she was taken by his dark eyes and calm southern swagger. He was tall, lean, sinewy even. His forearms rippled as his large hands gripped the handles of her suitcases. She quietly answered, My name is Rose. I'm from Muscle Shoals. Well, Rose from Muscle Shoals, let's get you moved in. The two of them started up the stairs, and Rose noticed the weather was changing as a dark cloud moved across the sun. A storm was coming. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Paul. So just a couple of things for our listeners. Um, earlier in the book before this chapter, the Miss Junior Alabama pageant was something that uh, came about uh, fortuitously because she's very poor. Her mother puts her money into it. They win this thing, and now she's going to go off to college. And then you say in here, her older brother, Hank, to her great relief, had not been around for some time. And and that's because, you know, the older brother had raped her. Correct. So you, you're building this past of a woman who is, she's raised uh, in poverty, a father who's violent. She's raped by her brother. She goes off. She meets Rathbone, who's Wrath. And you sort of lay a little, you know, foreshadowing here that a storm was coming. And it was, because when she married Wrath, Things didn't go well. She ended up with a child, and she had to get out of there. 
That's right. She and and um, as you read on, and you find out how this affected her. She always was worried that well, she saw herself as white trash. Um, she would deny it, but because of the of physical, of the verbal abuse from her father, uh, being raped by her brother, dirt poor, um, she grew up with a horrific self-image, and and oftentimes the way people contend with that is they look down on others in order to avoid their own feelings of self-condemnation. They look down on others. So for her, her ticket out was her education. Her ticket out was going to college moving as far away from rural Alabama as possible and climbing high society. Um, and so later in the book, when you go back to the you know the discussion about South abroad, she doesn't live South abroad. She wants to desperately. She wants nothing more than to be seen by the proper Charleston society as belonging and being better than others. Mm-hmm. And her obsession with this and her fear her fear that she's going to be found out, her fear that she's going to be discovered as nothing but poor, unlovable white trash is what drives her um, to make some decisions about loved ones in her family um, that um, are a bit shocking. Yeah, we're not going to give away any any spoilers here, but I will say that uh, as I'm reading this, we've got this family unit. Monty comes along. He's the lawyer. He marries Rose. Um he adopts Eli, her her first child, as if Eli is his own. And then they have Walker together. But as this family's being raised, she is very much uh, more drawn to Walker than to her first child, Eli. And she's acting in ways that I'm thinking throughout the book, you know, a normal mother wouldn't act right. toward, toward their child. And so there's a lot buried there. Did you, uh, and without giving away, you know, what she does toward Eli as the book unfolds here, um, can you talk just a little bit about how some of those things might might drive someone? And you may have hinted at it a minute ago. It had something to do with her wanting to to not be perceived uh, as less than others. But still, is that enough to to turn away your own child? Right. Well, no, um, yeah. So she. So Monty. Um, you know, I've been asked, uh, well, who's the protagonist in this book? <laughs> and um, I would answer, well, Monty. Or I could also say the Atkins family is the protagonist in this story. Um, Monty is pulled between a um, Monty's a good man. He Monty is that humble kind of Jimmy Stewart overachieving regular guy who, when faced with challenges, does some heroic things. But he's not a superhero. But he does some heroic things, and he's torn between his vows to love and honor his spouse but also between not testing his children. And he feels that there are times when he can't do both because you're right. Um, uh, Rose gravitates towards the son they had together, Walker. He's the younger one. And, and Eli, well, um, you know, Eli's not perfect. Eli has a temper. Eli is an independent thinker. Eli won't perform for Rose. And so Rose sees Eli as a reminder of her past and of the decision she made to marry Rath in the first place. And so she tries to get him to bend to her will and conform and perform, and he won't. So she's always comparing the two. Walker is more malleable. Walker is afraid of his mother, scared to death of his mother. Um, wants to please his father because he loves his father, and but but that dynamic is what um, 
Rose plays off. She is unbelievably insecure and does not feel loved or lovable. And so she manipulates and uses guilt to get Walker to do what she wants, to get Monty to do what she wants, but Eli won't. Eli won't do what she wants. Um, now, all that being said, when my wife, who was my first reader, um, she goes, Paul, no mother would act the way you have Rose acting. And, and I go, okay, I need more backstory. I need to be able to lay the groundwork for why somebody would. And so I did that. And then I also came back to the reality that um, this is fiction and mm -hmm. we can fictionalize a little bit. Um, and um, so I did. Yeah, well, well, there is an arc there. And, and the fact that you mentioned protagonist and trying to figure out who it is, uh, particularly, we could also do the same thing. We're talking about, you know, the antagonist. I mean, on the one hand, it could be Stephen Presswick. He's Kimberly's father, the, the murdered uh, young girl uh, who's the girlfriend of, of Eli. He makes it his mission to bring down Monty and to bring down Monty's family uh, so he can be one antagonist that Monty's right. trying to fight against. But then, you know, um, I think the antagonist could be even much larger than that, perhaps. It's it's uh, it's sort of life and, and what life is thrown at, you know, uh, Rose in particular and how that spins this thing out of control. Yeah, no, um, I, I yes. Um, Stephen is a, he's an antagonist in a subplot. Um, and uh, yeah, the, you know, um, Wrath, he's he's he, um, he serves a purpose in the story to propel it forward, uh, and yeah, he's an antagonist of sorts. But I, I think what I was really focused on with with the characters is their character arc. Okay, this is where they are. All this bad stuff happens to them. How do they respond? Stephen Presswick responded one way, and Stephen was the secular, successful banker around town money prestige power status um uh, monty is the humble pulled up by his bootstrap trying to make it work he's succeeding he's succeeding um and sort of a contrast between who survives and and monty um he, he's a deacon in the church his understanding of of, uh, of his faith is that it has to be earned. His salvation has to be earned. And so he's a control freak. And he, he thinks that all he has to do is tithe and pray and good things will happen. And so I believe uh, for him, you know, his character arc is coming to understand what it truly means to trust God, which is to let go and 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 truly trust. So, yeah, the antagonist. You're right. I think it's life and how we respond to it, and 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 the the bad things that can happen in our lives. You know, flow through the characters of Stephen Presswick, and then you know, in Wrath, and and, well, and Rose, and Rose as well. Yeah. Well, it looks like you did learn something reading all those books and those blogs because each each good story has to have an arc to it, and yeah, you know, yeah. these char characters have to have an arc when they come into it, which leads us right into a few writing life questions I've got for you before we wrap it up today. Um, you know, you came from this other background and I'm just wondering, um, what was the hardest thing, Paul, for you to do during this process of writing this novel? Um, I'll, I'll answer that with this. This is not a good answer. The answer is the hardest part of writing this novel was writing this novel. <laughs> and, and I say that to say, um, uh, I, I, 
I spent so much time um, coming up with what the story was. And so I, I, I set out, I told my wife, I said, I want to come up with a good story. And then I want to come up with a good way to tell the story. And if I could take all the time that it took me to write it, it seems like most of the work happened in the last 10 yards because it was so difficult to just get the story out there and come up with, okay, the character arc and the inciting event and, and who lives and who dies and what the ending is. Once I got it down, the editing process wasn't that difficult because I got to the point where I go, oh, I know how many minutes it takes me to edit 1,500 words or 2,000 words. I'd look at it and I'd go, okay, over the next five days, I should be able to edit this many pages. And then it worked. It flowed. It was more like my old business experience where I knew how long things would take. But on the front end, when, again, literally and figuratively, you're looking at a blank sheet, you're trying to figure out what the story is. And you, you, you'll go down this rabbit trail and you go, eh, that doesn't work. You know, you, you write yourself into a corner, throw it away. Uh, and so the hardest part was being creative on demand. And I found that I can't be creative on demand. Um, and the, I got a great piece of writing advice. And it was from a gentleman. He's older than I am. He's retired. And he had moved here from California. And he'd been a film editor. So he knew a fair amount about storytelling. And that we met him. We, we, we knew hardly anyone in common. So he was almost a, he was a very safe place. And I just started the process of writing this book. And he goes, so, Paul, what do you do? And so, uh, what do I do? Um, and I said, well, I'm trying to write a book. And I'm, I'm frustrated. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And he goes, Stop trying to write a book. Just write. Just write and stitch it together later. And so I went to my to the library the next day. I sat down and I just started writing. And I and and it was like, okay, the first paragraph or two was just sort of like treading into the pool, but then all of a sudden I'm I'm right. It's like it worked. And so um, when I get stuck. Uh, you call it, a, you know, procrastinating, writer's block, lazy, inertia, whatever. I just start writing and I find magically that when I'm finished, whether it's 10 minutes later or two hours, I'm like, wow, it worked. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it, it's very much a trusting process. I can't quote, I'm going to be creative now and ding, you know, write it down. It doesn't happen that way. And then at times it doesn't happen, but maybe that afternoon I go to the driving range to hit the golf ball for a little bit. And all of a sudden, wait a minute, I got it. That, that, that can work. I can't turn my, I, I can't turn create being creative on and off. I can't schedule it. And that, that is the frustrating part of it. It's also the cool part when it happens. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of that, the way you described your experience, let me just ask you, what was the most enjoyable part other than writing those words, the end? <laughs> <laughs> um, when when uh, we ordered a box of advanced reader copies from a publisher that turns it around quickly <laughs> and we got that box and we opened it up and I'm like, wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, okay. We're going to, we're going to jump over now to, uh, to Patreon before, before we do listeners, let me just tell you, you can go to our website and uh, check out Paul and, uh, uh, in the show notes and with links to his book and uh, Blood in the Low Country is his uh, debut novel. Uh, Paul, uh, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. 
Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.